Hello and welcome again to the KI Prime podcast. My name is Alina Jenkins and in this episode I'm speaking to Chris Watling and Chris is a medical education researcher at Western University's Schulich School of Medicine and Dentistry in London, Canada. Chris trained as a neurologist. He then embarked on a mid-career journey of graduate work and professional development to create the foundation for a program of research and scholarship in education. As a researcher, Chris studies why doctors are difficult to coach, why feedback frequently misses the mark, and why professional culture so often undermines the best laid curriculum plans. Chris, welcome. Thank you. We've got lots to talk about in this podcast. Uh, The first thing I have to ask is, why do you think doctors are difficult to coach? (laughs) Well, I don't think doctors as individuals are difficult to coach. But I think that there's something about the medical education environment and something about the professional culture of medicine that makes coaching as a strategy for making somebody better a a difficult strategy to employ. I've done some work uh, that sort of crosses different sort of professional boundaries. I've looked at people who've been athletes and people who've been musicians and are now medical doctors to get a sense of what's it like to be coached in another discipline, another field of endeavor, even to a really high level. And then what does it feel like when those same things start to unfold in medical training? And it's quite fascinating. People who feel very comfortable with the idea of getting critique from a coach as a dancer, as an athlete, as a musician, they often feel very uncomfortable getting critique as a medical student or as a resident. Same individual. So it's not quite fair to say that doctors are difficult to coach, but there's something about the environment that we put them in that makes coaching and just giving people useful feedback sometimes really fraught and really challenging for them. What do you think that is then around the environment? Because I love coaching as a tool. It's what I do when I'm not working on this right? podcast is I is I coach business leaders and executives okay, to right. be better presenters and better communicators. And I love this idea of coaching because often it's about empowering the other person, making them feel good. So what is it, do you think, about perhaps maybe the environment of medical education that takes people who liked being coached to feeling deeply uncomfortable about it? So I think medicine, actually, medical education likes the idea of coaching too. We've kind of latched onto it a little bit. And I'm worried as a researcher, I'm worried it's a bit of a runaway train that everybody is saying, yes, we're going to be coaches now. And that's how we're going to approach education. And without some careful thought about, well, exactly what does that coaching dynamic require? What what needs to happen? What needs to be present? What needs to feel safe for people in order for coaching to make sense and to actually help them? So one of the things is that if you're coaching, for example, an athlete or a musician or a dancer, or maybe even an executive when you kind of take them out of the boardroom and do some coaching, they have to feel really free to experiment, to try things, to sometimes fail, to be, to be vulnerable with the coach, and, and to use that vulnerability or sometimes failure as kind of fuel to be able to improve things. Mm. And I think that's just a very difficult, challenging thing for people in medicine to do, partly because the stakes of the work sometimes feel like failure is not comfortable, mm. is not safe, doesn't feel like it's a good option. But I think 
doctors are also very conditioned from a very early stage of their training to behave in, in confident and competent ways, even if they don't always feel it. And so you feel like instead of being coached, uh, the interpretation is often that you're being judged. And so if the person who's supposed to be coaching you, if you feel like they're judging you, they might be responsible for your future career development, for example, then you kind of feel this pressure to perform for them. And as soon as you feel pressure to perform for somebody, then you don't necessarily open yourself up to being able to really delve into how you can improve, what, you know, what things could be made better, what are your strengths you can build on, but what are some of the weaknesses that you need to try to address? Mm. I think that's part of the problem. Yeah. So, so in, in your area of research then, how are you looking to improve that? To me, from with my mindset coming in from a communication background, it's about maybe setting expectations or building trust. And are those right. some of the things that you, you are, you're looking at? Yeah. So I think looking at, first of all, I think it has been really helpful for me to try to understand what the coaching dynamic looks like in other places. So how do I've studied, for example, how do musicians experience feedback and coaching and how do athletes experience feedback and coaching? And also how do sports coaches think about the work that they do? And so I, I think that's really helpful in terms of building the foundation. So if you're going to teach people how to engage productively in coaching, it's helpful to understand what coaching looks like. Mm. So when you talked about expectations, I think there's an expectation of a, a sort of a mutual engagement, this really lovely thing that happens in coaching where people talk about a kind of a we dynamic as opposed to you. And, and people will talk, if you listen to tennis players, they'll often talk about their team and they talk about their performance in the, in the plural. You know, we did really well today. We're really pleased with how this has come along. And, and that I think tells you something about the, the really kind of engaged relationship between coach and, and learner, coach and athlete, or maybe between coach and doctor. Yeah, yeah. Um, so I wanted to move on to the, to the second bit, yeah. which is around professional culture hmm. and why that undermines curriculum plans sometimes. So what, what are you looking at in that area? So one of the things that I think you notice if you look about sort of look at kind of the history of new interventions in medical education is that we we tend to focus very much on the individuals involved. So, for example, I've done a lot of study of feedback. How do, how do feedback conversations unfold in medical training? And there's been 30 years of efforts to make feedback better, and they haven't really delivered as much as you'd think they would. And that's, at least in my view, that's because the focus has tended to be on individuals. So how would I teach you as a teacher to craft better feedback? What words should you use? What should the content of that feedback look like so that the package is better? And I think we've also started to pay a bit of attention to learners. How do you become a good user of feedback? Mm -hmm. But we've not really paid very much attention at all to the culture in which those feedback conversations are taking place. So if you have a culture, as medicine is, which tends to value independence, autonomy, and confidence, then the best intentioned feedback conversations sometimes kind of come up against that cultural expectation that can make those conversations difficult. So it sort of made me think that the more 
you know, all of this time that we've spent trying to teach individuals about how to have a better conversation, we also have to think about, well, what's the, what's the room and the environment that we're expecting them to have that conversation in? And how do we make that a, a comfortable space for that kind of conversation rather than a not a very comfortable space? Mm. Are you also looking at how that will then apply globally as well? Because I will be having conversations with, with some of the other fellows around culture and and conversations that you have depending on where they are in the world. So right. the way that you will communicate in Canada might be very different to the way that people might communicate here in Stockholm or yes. in Sri Lanka. So yes. did you have to take that into account as well as to how cultures change globally? Because this is a this is a global area that we're in. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Uh, and I've I've had the chance and my work is basically I interview people and I try to make sense of their stories. And, and so I've talked to people who trained in medicine in very different cultures, mm -hmm. uh, some of which have a culture of a very strongly critical culture, mm -hmm. which is a, almost um, if I don't hear anything, it means I must be doing well because praise is never going to be part of the equation. I would say Canada is a little bit more to the other extreme where to to be able to identify critique, you have to sort of read between the lines. Mm. And so if somebody says, oh, that was good, well, the implication is probably not very good. And, and that's our culture. And then I've talked to people with even more extremes of that sort of positive culture where it's actually very difficult to say anything negative at all. And so I think, you know, you, there's not a one size fits all solution to this. I think any approaches to having useful, meaningful feedback conversations have to be very mindful of the context and the particular culture that they're situated in and kind of what that culture expects, how people conduct themselves, how they relate to each other. Because mm -hmm. if I think if you don't understand that, then some generic solution is just not going to help. Yeah. And, and which, of course, then ties into the third thing, which you've just mentioned there is, is feedback. I mean, this is all yeah. interlinked, isn't it? And uh, I was having a fascinating conversation a few years ago with Dr. Liz Malloy right, around yeah. feedback literacy, yes. um, you know, something that she's very keen on with her area of, of, of research. And I mean, I guess really to get better at feedback, this is what we've just been talking about, is we need to get better at communicating, understanding the other person's point of view. Yes. Um, you know, but what, what are your thoughts on how to deliver the best kind of feedback? Yeah. I mean, uh, Liz and I do a little bit of work together and we have, I think, complementary views of this. So she has focused on that area of feedback literacy and, and basically how to make people better, smarter, more savvy users of feedback. Really important area. I'm sort of more interested in what is the way that we, how do we organize ourselves so that we make it more likely that people are going to be able to comfortably and naturally engage in useful feedback conversations. You know, so for example, we know that one of the things that makes feedback easier is when the two people involved in the feedback conversation have a relationship when they know each other, when they trust each other, and when they kind of develop a little bit of a shorthand for how they're going to relate to each other. We also know that medicine, much of medical training tends to be organized in ways that make it very difficult for those relationships to develop. Mm -hmm. A medical learner might actually be working with a different supervisor every week for a year. So, what kind of environment does that create to find someone that you can trust enough to have a really meaningful conversation that sometimes is critical, sometimes contains some, you know, corrective aspects to it? And so that's my angle is to say, of course, it's important to pay attention to feedback literacy, but you can only be literate 
if the environment makes it possible for good conversations to take place. Mm -hmm. So how do we create environments where people can develop trusting relationships, for example, where their supervisor has the opportunity to periodically watch them work so that they have some, you know, some fodder for a good coaching or feedback conversation. And those are really structural and organizational things that we kind of have to look beyond the individuals and telling them how to talk mm -hmm. and think more about what environments are we putting them into. Yeah, so it's. It, I suppose it all comes back to changing the environment yeah. that people work in. How do you do that? How, <laughs> how does your research <laughs> and your work help us to get sort of closer to <laughs> to that that wonderful place? Well, you know, I think there's at least two kinds of medical education researchers. There's uh, people who like to implement stuff. And there's people who like to problematize stuff. I'm kind of in that latter category. So I like to say, oh, it's way more complicated than you thought, and here's why. Yeah. And uh, other people need to try to solve it. I, I'm, I'm being a little bit facetious, but I think part of the problem is that the solution in my environment is not necessarily going to be the same as mm -hmm. the solution in your environment. So what I'm hoping to do is more unearth some of the principles. So think about principles like if you're going to have an affecting, effective coaching relationship, you need to have opportunities for people to get to know each other, opportunities for a teacher and a learner to get to know each other and to get to trust each other. You've got to find ways of making it so that sometimes the conversation feels very low stakes. It doesn't feel like it's about your future or your career or, you know, making a judgment about your competence. It's just about, we're going to help you to get to the next level. Mm. And how you create those kinds of opportunities is probably just different in different places. So I'm hesitant to be too prescriptive about it, but I, I am interested in trying to think about, well, what are some of the kinds of principles that people would need? Um, you know, we, we can't become sports coaches, but we can look at what they do and try to take some of the best of it and think about how it might adapt in our environment. Mm. I can see why as a neurologist, you've actually ended up down this path because it's thinking about how our brains work and yeah. how, you know, everyone has a, a sort of, everyone's brain works in a, in a different way. But what was it for you that, that sort of said, I'm going to step away from neurology and go down into this field of medical education research? Yeah. I mean, I think partly just something that was energizing and invigorating at a point in my career when I needed to do something different. Mm -hmm. I think as I, after I started making this change, though, I recognized some parallels. You know, what neurologists basically do is they talk to people. Mm -hmm. So you, you talk to somebody, you let them tell their story. It sometimes is a story about an unusual experience that they're struggling to make sense of. And you kind of act as an interpreter and say, I, I think this is what this might mean. And that's a lot of the kind of research that I do. Mm. Um, I, I've also actually just found some parallels to stuff that I thought I'd left behind in my life. I was I did a lot of classical music training before I went to medical school, and I thought for a while I would be a, a piano player instead of a, instead of a neurologist. Um, and I thought that was all kind of in the past. And so, and then in the course of this research, I kind of had opportunities to make some links and say, well, there's something about music training that might be relevant here. Let's try to sort of bring that in. So that's been kind of fun and engaging to feel like to feel like I've found a line of research that really speaks to kind of who I am as an individual, but also to some of the problems that I see kind of plaguing the, you know, the the educational system that I care about. Yeah. And 
I know you you care about the education system and also about academic writing. Yes. <laughs> so I, I was wondering if you had some some pearls of wisdom for people listening about academic writing because I think for some people it'd be like I'm not a writer how do I right. and you've mentioned story a couple of times which is great because when we tell stories it's how we remember and yeah. pass on information yeah. so what would be perhaps some of your advice to people new to medical research and how they begin their academic writing career the first thing I think is to discipline yourself to start embracing the idea that you are a writer and that you can develop the skill of writing and that it's not something that just innately comes to some people and not to others. Everybody periodically struggles with writing. And so it's helpful to, I think, just have, have some strategies that you can bring to it and, and, and some ways of thinking about writing. Um, but I think the first thing is just not to be afraid of it. For me, I, I've always liked writing, but only in the last 10 years or so of my career have I had a chance to really try to to interrogate why and what it is that I'm actually doing and to try to put a name to it so that if I can name it in my own writing, I can start to identify it for other people. I, I think the idea that you're trying to tell a story and a compelling and persuasive story that really convinces people that the problem that you're talking about matters um, that allows them to relate it to their world and to some of the concerns that they may have and allows them to see beyond your work into other issues that may be related. And so you, you tend to get that by thinking about what your story is and thinking about kind of the so what of mm -hmm. the story and how you can articulate that in a way that's going to resonate with people. Yeah. And just before you go, Chris, I'd, I'd love to hear your thoughts on this wonderful three days that we're spending together as a KI Prime Fellow. So what this means for you to be here and also how perhaps you, you know your hopes for the future from, from being here over the three days. There is something really lovely about just having some time to reflect. I mean, it's not all sitting around reflecting, but some of the reflecting is through through writing and through exercises of trying to to kind of grapple with kind of the more existential questions about what am I doing and why am I doing it and what what's my place in this world. So there's a nice gift in that because most of us, I think, are just so busy that we don't very often have a chance to do that. And I think it does require more than an hour here or, uh, you know, um, or a half hour there. It, it's really helpful to have this concentrated time. It's meaningful, I think, to connect with people in different parts of the world. Some of these people I knew, some of them I'd never met before, and uh, hearing the ways in which what they're dealing with is similar and the ways in which uh, it's quite different has been quite fascinating. So I learned from, from uh, other people. I am probably one of the oldest fellows. And so uh, <laughs> part of my, we had to write a little two-pager about why we thought we were, you know, suitable for this. And I really had to think a little bit about what do I still have, you know, what do I still have ahead of me? What, why am I, do I still feel open to this kind of developmental work? And so I, I just find it really energizing to think that I could be doing things differently in five years than I am now. Yeah, it's a, it's a it's a great place to do that, and I think everybody I'm speaking to so far is is also appreciating that idea of continual learning, no matter yeah. what age you are. Yeah, it's like we're always learning and moving forward. And Chris, yeah. it's been great to speak to you. Thank you so much for your time. Yeah, likewise, lovely. Thanks. Thank you to everybody listening at home. Uh, thank you for your time listening to the Ki Prime podcast. For now, goodbye.